We're in a series called Word-Rooted Prayer and Worship, Keeping Your Heart Close to the Flame. We did, oh man, we must have done eight, nine weeks talking about prayer. This is part 11 in the series, and we're looking at worship. And the text tonight is John chapter 12. John 12, 1 to 8. The title tonight, under the big umbrella title, the subtitle is Worship, an attitude of heart, but more. An attitude of heart, but more. John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus is one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, quote, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, which is about a good, a good year's income? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John has this little comment. He, Judas, said this not because he cared about the poor. He didn't care beans about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Did Jesus know that Judas was a thief? Here's my question. How many say yes? Why did he put him in charge of the money? We'll keep reading. Seven, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. The answer to the question, I think, the Bible doesn't say, is that Jesus wants to show where the love of money leads. I mean, Judas didn't start out betraying Jesus. He started out loving money. But you don't really get to stop the direction, the downward direction of your heart if you love material things. It leads to actual betrayal of Christ and spiritual betrayal of Christ. It needs great caution, like Paul says, writing 1 Timothy. All right. In the last two studies in this series, we looked at, if you remember, we looked at Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. Saw the Lord high and lifted up. Woe is me, for I am undone. That whole thing. And what we centered on in those two studies was... The authority of the king in worship, because foundational to everything else, what Isaiah sees first and foremost, there's all sorts of things. There's these angelic beings, and there's the smoke and the train filling the temple and all that stuff. But what he sees is the Lord on a throne. We started there because no one, no one is is entering into worship properly, and sometimes even our worship songs. We need to think about this. Worship isn't entered into properly just because we think of God's greatness. He is great. But worship is most 
properly entered into, not when we think of God's greatness, but when we think of God's authority. I saw one on a throne because I can get all sorts of pimply feelings about God with the right music. That's not the same as yielding to the authority of the throne in all of my areas of life. There is a place for that emotional component in worship. We'll, we'll have that tonight, I hope. Nothing wrong with it. But I'm saying it's incomplete without the throne, the one sitting on the throne. And we spent two weeks looking at that subject. I don't just admire God's greatness. I don't even just celebrate his love. I bow before his throne. Tonight, another dimension to full-blooded worship in the teaching of the scriptures with this account of Mary anointing, anointing Jesus. Point number one. Worship cannot be scripturally expressed without radical demonstrations of giving and service. This account that we read from John's gospel is repeated, in my opinion, some questioned it, in my opinion, is repeated in Matthew and in Mark with slight variations and changes in details. And I think the simple reason for it is this account expresses one dominant truth. And sometimes one big truth is more forceful than several smaller ones. So let me summarize the, the core of this event, the anointing of Jesus by Mary, the core of it as it relates to worship. And it's this. Worship includes, certainly, but it involves giving the Lord much, much more than just praise. We'll see in future teachings that it must include praise, joyful, expressive praise. But the point of this passage is a little bit different. Worship calls for the offering of something tangible of ourselves, our time, our resources, our service seems the most obvious feature of this story of Mary and Jesus. Everything else seems small and pale in comparison to her almost reckless pouring out of about one year's income over the head and feet of her Lord. So whatever else we're supposed to get from this account, as it's repeated in the New Testament, it's this. Worship is the opposite of detachment. Worship is the opposite of cool observation. Who told Mary to pour out this perfume over the body of Jesus? Or for that matter, who told the Magi from the East to bring gold frankincense, and myrrh. You know, Christmas will come. We'll hear the account. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, so worship him already. Sing a song. But no, it's not enough just to come and bow. It's not enough just to come and say things to the baby. Something has to be given 
We see it at the baby's birth. We see it in this account of Mary. Something must be brought and offered along with the words and the songs of praise and adoration. You'd think we couldn't miss it. It's, it's underscored by King David, Psalm 96, 8 and 9. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. And we all say amen. Bring an offering. What? Yeah. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So do come. Do come and worship the Lord. Don't come without bringing something to give. Why? Because the giving, the giving of self, the sacrifice, this giving is a part of what worship is all about. We can't worship without it. If we make worship just mental, we will destroy it. Worship isn't just verbal. It includes verbal, but it isn't just verbal. It's sacrificial. So worship isn't just emotional expression. Worship reorganizes priorities and expenditures and service and time. I guess what I'm trying to make clear under this primary point about worship, about worship being defined by giving and sacrificing, is this isn't something peripheral. This, this isn't something optional. The idea of, of giving oneself giving one's resources, giving one's time and sacrifice. It's the very heart of worship. It's presenting something of ourselves to God. We know this is true in all kinds of worship. Idolatrous worship. The worship of things. The worship of material things. We know what happens. These things consume us. Whatever it is you worship, if you really worship it, you're spending money on it. You're giving time to it. You're giving energy to it. Now, what the worship of God does is it, is it comes and shuffles and reorganizes the inordinate amount of energy and sacrifice we used to give to other things, and it's drawn out of that, and it's brought to the throne. Do you see what I'm saying? It reorganizes. It reorganizes everything. Worship is meant to do that. It's meant to change my heart. It's meant to bring order to it. Everyone talks. There used to be songs, famous songs about Mary, broken and spilled out, pouring out her love to Jesus. They're all good, except Mary didn't just pour out her love. And except for Judas, as far as we know, everyone in the crowd loved Jesus. But Mary's different. She didn't just offer Jesus her love. Mary poured out about a year's worth of income. And Jesus didn't say, Jesus didn't say the disciples' love would be remembered everywhere the gospel was preached. No, it was Mary's sacrifice that would be remembered everywhere the gospel was preached. I'll show that to you in a minute. Why? Why Mary? Well, because her love was the kind of love that revealed the nature of true worship. Hers was an act of worthy remembrance because, 
remembrance because it, it taught a pattern of worship. It showed something about worship. Mark 14, 9, Jesus. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wow. That's pretty good. Her devotion was so precious to Jesus because she remembered something that religious pastors and religious people can easily forget, that words of worship, while important, can become common. Music can become repetitive, but sacrifice stands out. Giving and sacrifice are at the very core of worship in Jesus' eyes. The most complete and extensive New Testament passage on the nature of spiritual worship is Romans chapter 12. And almost everyone knows the first two verses of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And it's easy to think that that's where the discussion of worship ends in Romans 12. It isn't. The rest of the chapter goes on to talk about how a worshiping heart manifests itself in those who truly love God. And Paul's going to go on to describe how worship manifests itself in teaching, leading, encouraging, using your spiritual gifts, giving your finances, serving in the body of Christ. So, so worship, isn't, worship isn't the 15 minutes that follows this teaching when they come up and sing. That's a part of worship. But worship involves all those other expressions of my service to the Lord. These are not different topics from worship when Paul describes them. It's easy to get confused and to sound very sincere in it. Every once in a while I've had someone come up to me. It's usually someone who's involved in the church and you haven't seen them for a while, almost always. And they'll say something like this because... Because if they know anything, they know if you're talking to the pastor about why you're not very involved in the church, you need something that sounds very spiritual. Pastor Don, you know, just the Lord dealing with my heart. I've just gotten so busy. I just got so busy serving the Lord, and I think the Lord is just telling me I need to just step back and just love the Lord. I need to stop doing things for God and I need to just start being a person of loving worship. I think I know what that person means. I think they're sincere. I think he means that he somehow lost touch with the reason for all of his activity. I think he means he's lost focus. I think he means he wants to return to just a simple devotion maybe that he had for the Lord when he was first saved, and I commend the desire. I commend it because it is 
possible to do all the things we do supposedly for the Lord. You can do it with a cold and a distant and a formal and a dutiful heart. It's possible to be busy for the Lord without sensing any personal attachment to the Lord. I think that much of the statement is true. But if the diagnosis is right, the solution is all wrong. Yeah, it is possible to serve the Lord without worshiping the Lord. But after admitting that, everything else this person said, sincerely, was mistaken. Because while you can serve the Lord without a heart of worship, here's what you can't do. You can't worship the Lord truly without a heart of service. You have to be careful there. You can serve the Lord without a heart of worship. What you can't do is truly worship the Lord without a heart of sacrifice and service. The one we worship sits on a throne. If God's given me the ability to teach, I can't truly be a worshiper of God without exercising that ministry. If God's given me the ability to sing and play, which he hasn't, and you're all saying, thank you, Jesus. I know, I know. But if God's given me that ability, I cannot truly worship the Lord without using those gifts in honor and glory to the Lord. If God's given me a job where I have a sizable income, I cannot worship the Lord without being generous with my gifts. Those things aren't over and above my worship. They aren't the ice cream that can be scraped off leaving a chocolate cake underneath. No, those things are my worship. I can't please God with worship that isn't accompanied by obediently offering those things in faithfulness to him along with my praise. He doesn't just get my praise, he gets my life. Two, we're way past half done, though, relax. The story of Mary has much to teach about ordering our lives in 2022. And here's what we see. There are times in life for caution. There are times in life for extravagance. True worship always calls for the latter. It's amazing, it's amazing and instructive that as far as we know, not one of the other disciples endorsed Mary's actions. In fact, Mark fills out some of the details we find that Judas actually wasn't alone in rebuking Mary for this reckless act of sacrifice. It's in Mark 14, 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they, underline, scolded her. And here's what I see. Apparently, religious people can live very closely with Jesus for quite a while and miss the importance of extravagance in worship. You would think 
just looking around the room. It wouldn't require brilliance, just looking around the room, that they all could have put this together. They could have seen why Mary did what she did. Think about the scene for a minute. Mark tells us this gathering took place at the home of Simon the leper, only he's not Simon the leper anymore. It was a very unusual event to gather in the home of anyone who was called Simon, Joe, Susan, the leper, in those days especially. No one would have gathered at Simon's house. He didn't go to the house of a leper. They lived like outcasts from the rest of the world, but all that had changed. It had changed because Jesus had touched Simon. Jesus had touched Simon and made him whole. And it was instant. And it was complete. And people saw it. And then there was Lazarus sitting at the table. If you think it was a stretch for them to be meeting at Simon's house, you're really going to have to adjust your thinking for Lazarus because not all that long ago, Lazarus was a corpse. He was stone cold dead, as dead as anybody has ever been. Jesus called him out of the tomb. Wouldn't you like to have been there? Lazarus, come forth. There was a country preacher who was explaining this text, and he did a better job than any commentary I've read. And he said, you know why Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Because if Jesus had just raised his voice and said, come forth, every grave in the country. <laughs> I love that. And so Lazarus is sitting there. Lazarus is sitting there, and Mary glances around the room. It's so good to have Jesus there. And she looks at Simon, and she remembers how lonely he used to be. She can't believe the change as Simon engages in laughter and conversation with Jesus. And then Mary's eyes, I'm not being melodramatic, but I'm sure her eyes moisten as she looks at her brother, Lazarus, and there he is, sitting at the table, joking, laughing, talking, eating with everyone. How different life was in Mary's little house. And then she looks at Jesus, and it's because of him. She knows the meaning of those words that he makes all things new. Just his word had brought such life and joy. Nothing was the way it used to be, all because of Jesus. And, and she's overwhelmed. And without saying a word, as far as we know from the text, she doesn't say anything to anybody. She gets out this precious jar. She kept it hidden because it's the most valuable thing that the family had ever possessed. And suddenly she can't keep it inside. Without an announcement, she breaks it open and pours it out to show her love for Jesus. And she understands nothing less than that will do in that set of circumstances. Maybe that's the whole point. 
Maybe this story is told, Jesus says it'll be her account will be repeated forever and ever, and it's told in virtually all the Gospels but one. Maybe it's recorded to confront my Canadian tendency to calculate and to measure and to rationalize everything in my walk with Jesus. And that's not worship. That's religion. There's a time to be cautious, but there's time to be extravagant. Worship must be passionate and sacrificial. Our hearts need big pushes toward the kingdom of heaven, not little ones. Little ones are useless for people such as we. Your kids need to see a passionate commitment to worshiping and sacrificing for Jesus. What good is a moderate love for Jesus in their eyes? Spiritual decisions have to be big decisions or they're usually worthless decisions. Jesus was all, have you noticed he was always doing this? He praises Mary for what everybody else in the room thought was nuts. He tells people that if your hand causes you to sin, you're way better off getting a knife and cutting it off. That's not a small measure. Unless you make big decisions for the kingdom, they're likely to have very little impact on your life. And they're likely to not shine very brightly as an example. We need this. I need this. Three, we're almost done. We will need this example of Mary pressed home and repressed into our hearts over and over until Jesus comes. I think that's what he's hinting at in Mark 14, 9. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We will always need something stretching us like this woman's story. We will always have the tendency to calculate and reserve and be cautious. The text actually refers to something Mary probably never thought of, and it comes, the words come immediately preceding verse 9. Look at Mark 14, 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, he's, he's not just saying, I'm only here for a little while. It it's, goes beyond that. Keep reading. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Then he says, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The text doesn't say Mary knew that she was pointing to Jesus' future death and burial. That's not what the text says. Jesus simply uses this occasion to remind the disciples of his soon coming death Mary's act was used by Jesus to point to his death for sinners. The idea seems to be that no act of devotion could possibly be deemed extravagant to a Lord who was going to be a redeemer. And those words have more weight for me than they did for Mary. Because I know all about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection on my behalf, I know a lot more about that than Mary did. 
we have received greater riches from his hand than Simon or Lazarus ever did. We have more reason for giving our all like Mary to our Lord. And so we need this example of Mary because, because that kind of responsiveness can grow cold in all of us. Worship can, it can turn into ritual rather than sacrificial action. The disciples, Jesus' disciples actually criticized Mary for what she did. Would we have? Might. We might have. Didn't they see what Mary saw? Had they already forgotten about the healing miracle of Simon? Had the resurrection of Lazarus left them cold? Why weren't they moved in the presence of Jesus? And what can I learn? Last page of notes. I think I'm to learn that even followers of Jesus can drift in worship. It's sacrificial. It can happen in a church. It can happen in this church. Worship can lose its devoted, sacrificial center. We can perform our worship. We can know the songs. It can be a slippery, hard to define process, but this much is certain. Whenever the giving of our all becomes a joyless chore, we've lost something of the beauty of our Lord. Love so amazing, so divine. Say the rest of it with me. Demands my soul, my life, my all. We need, we need to be like Mary, don't we? We need to be like Mary. And so bless the truth of your word to our hearts. <laughs> Jesus, you were right. The kingdom, it, it is like, a, like yeast. It gets into our hearts and it's meant to just keep expanding and pressing outward. The inward pressure of your kingdom that causes extravagance in worship in giving, in service, in sacrifice. For the loves of our heart get all reordered and reshaped in your created order. Help us to remember Mary. Jesus, you said, you need to remember Mary until you come again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.